Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. Today we will begin discussing 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel when surrounded by false teachers? If you stop and really think about it, you will realize that this is, in fact, the case. And furthermore, they seem to be getting away with it. They are perverting the gospel of our Savior, not just giving their own personal nuance or opinion on something, but fundamentally changing the message of the gospel. And the question we have is, when is God going to judge them? That's really where we left off with verse 3 right before this. When Peter explained that false teachers' condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Back in Matthew chapter 24, I just want to pause for a second and give you a little bit of insight here. Interesting, uh, his disciples, after he had finished just lambasting the Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 23. Uh, he leaves there. He left the temple and going away, it says in verse 1, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, Do you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be none left here, or the, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Verse 4, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Sounds like false teaching, doesn't it? And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. All this must take place. The end is not yet. Okay. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs, deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. There will be many that fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Listen to verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Interesting verses there as uh, he goes into this discussion, uh, this discourse uh, called the Olivet Discourse here, uh, talking about the end of days. And he says that in the generation that is leading up to the final judgment, which we would call the tribulation, the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, not the great tribulation. Notice that he says in that uh, at least once, couple, actually two different times, he says the end is not yet, but there will be a proliferation of, among many other things, false teaching. Many false teachers, many false prophets, many false Christs, and there's going to be so much so that many will be led astray. And he says, here's a call for the endurance, to borrow the language from from Revelation, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Uh, He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
it really feels at times like they're just everywhere. There's false teachers all around us. And what do we do? What is our hope? So now as we go into this section here, starting in verse four, we get to see examples of our immutable God. Immutable means not changing. He doesn't change at all. And so we see examples of his immutability when it comes to false teaching as Peter enters into some examples and further explanation as to the character of these false teachers. We can really take comfort knowing that their day is coming. God is not mocked. God uh, doesn't have things slip by unnoticed. The one thing that we have to remember is that our timing is not necessarily the Lord's timing. And while it may seem long and unending to us, it is not so with our Lord. He makes record of every blasphemy, every heresy, and those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James says that in James chapter 3, verse 1. So if we have people masquerading as true prophets, preachers, pastors, right, saying that they have authority to say what the Word of God says, and they're not saying what the Word of God says, uh, theirs is going to be a greater condemnation. And so as we enter into this section here, verses 4 to 10, we're governed by this uh, comfort, comforting proposition that God is powerful enough to protect you from the dangers of false teaching. He wants to warn us about it, but he's also powerful enough to protect us from it. And so the question that we would ask of this is, how do we see God's power over false teaching? By the way, there's a gigantic conditional argument being set up here, not just one, if this, then this, but several, if God did this, then this is true. There's actually three of them that will come out from the text. All right. So we see these conditions that we're saying, listen, if God can deal with false teachers in the past this way, this ought to give you comfort for the fact that he can protect you and deal with false teachers today and anytime that we see them in the future until sin is done away with and there is never false teaching again. So if God is powerful enough to protect us from the dangers of false teaching, how do we see his power over false teaching? First of all, in verse four, we see this, that God's power over false teaching is seen through his judgment of angels. Here's what Peter writes in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, third condition, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, there's a parenthetical statement there. Then we jump all the way down to verse nine here. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Definitely, we're not going to get all the way down there today, but it shows you the map, the trajectory of this particular pericope, a section of scripture, and where we're headed. So God's power over false teaching is seen through his judgment of angels, first of all. So this is just verse 4. He did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. What do we see here with regard to how he judged the angels? Well, first we see this topic of the fall of angels. We note in verse four that 
we, we'll get to the not sparing here in a second, but we note that angels sinned. <laughs> so we want to zero in on this phrase here that some angels sinned. It's really a statement of scripture, not only here, but we have other record of this as well. Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. There's some discussion here, but most people are in consensus that this is a picture of Satan and his fall. And we read this in part. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And so we see this fall here, not only of Satan, but of other angels. And so we have the statement of Scripture. We know, by the way, just from inferred logic, right, that the fall had to have taken place very close to the fall of Adam and Eve. We know that it it couldn't have taken place before the creation of the world because at the conclusion of creation, after the sixth day, Genesis 1.31 ends, God saw all that he had done, the work of his hands, and behold, it was very good. There's no room for sin or rebellion in that statement. So, you know, we have some theological and logical necessities that have to happen, but at some point when Satan comes to Eve to deceive her and ask the question, has God said, it's clear that he has fallen from heaven at that point. And so we have it inferred. We have statements from Scripture, not only here, but in Jude and in Isaiah, that tell us that there are segments of the angelic beings who, beings, excuse me, who have fallen. And so that really gets us to a theory of the timeline. We said it can't be before Genesis 131. It has to be after. And it would even seem reasonable to say that it took place after Genesis 2.25, uh, here we read this and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we know that one of the effects of the fall and of sin is shame. And so that's when, after they have sinned, that they realize that they're naked and try and cover themselves up. So it seems to take place as far as the scripture is concerned between Genesis 2, 25 and Genesis 3, verse 1, because we know in Genesis 3, 1 that Satan has already rebelled. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So that's really where we place the timeline, or at least the theory of the fall of Satan and a portion of the angelic host. Now, that brings us to another discussion with regard to the fall of the angels, and that is this. What, what are we talking about here when we're talking about angelic sin, and how does that have to deal with false teaching? There's a sense of pride if we take Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 to have a satanic meaning. Uh, there's, clearly, there's pride going on there. But I think that the sin of Satan and his fallen cohort must have been similar to how he tempted Eve to, to sin. Remember what he said? He questioned and he said, has God said? 
And though we are not privy to the conversations that took place in the heavenly realm between God and his heavenly servants, something had to be communicated and Satan and his followers were allowed to make the decision to reject that teaching and substitute it for something else. Therefore, we can say that false teaching is at the root even of the angelic fall, questioning the very word of God. Satan did this in the garden, and the great beast and the false prophet of Revelation will do great signs and wonders in an attempt to deceive even the elect in the book of Revelation. To deceive them to what? Uh, To deceive them to the fact that God is not—they're going to try and convince them that God is not all-powerful. You're going to try and convince them to turn away from the truth of Revelation. Now, interestingly here, he's talking about a a bigger number than just Satan. So we're not just looking at the original fall necessarily of Satan, but this is going to bring us into some interesting territory with regard to Scripture because it says God did not spare the angels, plural, when they sinned. Could be looking at the initial fall, but I think that what is in view here is reference to what we read about in the very first part of Genesis chapter six. And that of course is always up for a huge discussion, but it says here in Genesis six, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not always abide in man forever for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. Now, Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, he will blot man out. I will blot man out whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But verse eight, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. There's a lot going on there, but we really have to consider this, especially with the other verses that we have in scripture, uh, considering this verse and what, like what we read in Jude, for instance, and then what we encounter in the book of revelation. And so that brings us not only to the fall of angels when they sinned, but what happened here and the the consequence, the punishment that they received. And this is going to fall under the judgment of angels. It says here that God did not spare them. He didn't give them any grace. There is no redemption found for them. They can't seek it carefully with tears because Jesus Christ was made, as the author of Hebrews says, a little lower than the angels. And so uh, there is no category of savior for the angels. Those who have sinned and rebelled against God, their, their, their fate is forever sealed. Uh, but with this regard to this judgment, God, not only did he not spare them, but it says here that he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Huge loaded statement here that really makes a lot of sense if you take this and Genesis 6 and Jude and even in Revelation with the trumpet judgments, it all begins to make sense. It's crazy, but here let's let's go into it, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise or crush your head. Uh, we know that 
this is the first gospel. There's going to be a conflict between uh, the seed of the woman and that seed is Christ, not just humanity in general, but Jesus Christ. And we see reference to this later on in the New Testament, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Then we get to Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3 and 10, and he says, He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Okay, well, that's just Satan and the beast. Now we take, remember, we read Jude 6 here a little earlier. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here, and this is where we made the connection to Genesis chapter 6, we discover that whatever ended up happening between the sons of uh, God and the daughters of men, and there's question as to the identity. That's always one of the questions that comes up in, you know, theological undergrads and maybe even to some extent in in graduate school. You know, what is the identity here of that? Well, there's really the most way to, the best way to take that with regard to all of scripture and especially verses like what we're reading right now and even going into Revelation chapter uh, nine is to understand that sons of God here has to be angels and they're doing something wicked, perverse against creation with mankind. And it was so heinous and so grievous that God judges them. And so we're told that that's what Jude says there, that they left their position of authority. They abused that. And now we're told in verse four of second Peter chapter two, that the angels sinned. And so we get a picture of that, that they, they, uh, they did something in their sinning it has to do with how they abused their position. Then we're told a little bit more that it seems that they cohabitated with the daughters of mankind. Something was produced with that union that was awful and against creation. And God did not spare them when they sinned, but a certain segment, this isn't all of the fallen angels, but a certain segment of them, it says he cast them into this holding place. That's really what hell is. Hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire later. And it says that they committed them to gloomy chains or to chains of gloomy darkness. Now check this out (laughs) in Revelation chapter nine, we have the blowing of the fifth trumpet. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun of the air and the dark, the sun of the and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like the scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass. Okay. Long discourse. We definitely are out of time to get into any of that. We'll do a series on Revelation one day. I believe that these locusts here are not, they're not attack helicopters. They're not, what they are, are these uh, horrible demons, fallen angels who cohabitated uh, with, with the daughters of men. And they weren't ever intended to have any physical form, but God gives them a hideous form to match their hideous, sinful, uh, rebellious nature. And they are absolutely hideous upon the earth and they are brought in. And this is the time of judgment. 
he keeps them committed into those chains. They, those angels, fallen, cannot do anything on the earth right now. They are bound. There are other demons that are doing other things, and Satan is doing his thing, right? These ones are chained until that specific day of judgment. Moving ahead to verse uh, 10, what, what is it? Sorry, uh, verse 13 of chapter 9. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a loud voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops, these I believe are more demonic hordes, was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million demons who have been bound in addition to the ones who've already been loosed at the blowing of the fifth trumpet. And so we have here this idea that God has restrained and put in prison, a very real spiritual prison, uh, these demons. And this is who... Jesus goes to preach to during the time that he is in the grave before the resurrection to proclaim to them that he has conquered death, that Satan is defeated, their doom is sure. It all really makes sense because when it says that he cast them into hell, again, like I said, this holding place and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He's not talking about them being thrown into the lake of fire, but the great judgment. When we're talking about the judgment, we're talking about the great tribulation, the day of God's wrath, the judgment that comes upon the whole world. And here we see demons who have been bound in chains and being held for thousands of years being released as a part of judgment. They are being bound until judgment. And the point of all that with regard to false teaching is, is when you go against God's revealed word and you go against his order and his decrees, God will punish. And just as God punished them and has held them now for thousands of years until this coming day, and they will be released for a time, and then they will be eternally judged into the lake of fire. If he can do that with them, imagine what he can do with somebody as puny as a false teacher, like some of the ones that we talked about in the previous episode that are alive today, or the false teachers that have come a hundred years ago, the ones that Spurgeon confronted in his day, or the false Christ and the antichrists of the Reformation time that uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and all of these others confronted in their day or other false teachers of church history. And if God can judge them then we don't need to worry. He can judge the ones that we're facing today. Well, I've gone way over and I was tempted. I restrained myself. I was tempted to go into a longer discourse in Revelation because that has been a very insightful, eye-opening study to to go in and make all these connections in the scripture. Uh, But that will definitely be saved for another day. Again, this is just an illustration of this grand condition. If God can do this, if God can do this, if God can do this with all these people who pervert his word and he can bring justice and judgment upon them, trust that he can do that with false teachers as well. Well, we'll end it there and we'll pick it up in verse five in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website, at gfbc.net.